Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Our show today is packed with substance and meaning because both of our guests are continuously and thoroughly studying their respective topics of keen interest, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the Beatles. We are about to welcome a true and honest visionary and Emmy-winning producer who created reality TV and unceasingly sought an honest reporting of the truth behind the assassination of JFK. John Barber will join us very shortly. And then DJ, music producer, and Breakfast with the Beatles host and originator, Chris Carter is here with us in the studio. But first, Fritz, I'm hearing from producer Dina that you have some exciting news for specifically you and me. Media Path is our... <laughs> Well, we're, we're in our self-love era. Finally, we have something complimentary to read about ourselves, and we're championing at the bit to do it. The show is doing very well, and we want the world to know about it. it as a matter of fact, and it just so happens we've, we've got nearly the whole world listening. Recently, we were ranking quite high in the books category on Apple Podcasts internationally, including Portugal. That was our first time charting there, and also in Canada, and where we have charted previously, because, you know, it's just right across the bridge. Thank you so much to our global community. We love you and cherish you. I know we're big in Austria and other places. We've also been making waves on Good Pods, where we were just ranked number three in the top 100 media weekly chart, and number 14 in the top 100 TV weekly chart. And finally, a new review. This one comes from Christopher J. 76. Mm. You gotta hear it. The Media Path podcast was a great find. Wheezy and Fritz get into the interesting parts of music and have interesting takes on the Beatles, Gilbert O'Sullivan, and others. They tackle comedy to keep the listeners laughing. Now that I've found the show, I can't wait to explore the backlog. It's worth a listen, if not more. And I'm delighted to hear Fritz Coleman, although he's very old now and he probably doesn't uh, hear my voice. He, it he, doesn't I, say that. I, I agree. I grew up watching him on television, and God, he looks great for 90. This is the fun <laughs> and delightful podcast that should not be missed. Five stars for sure. Now, listen, folks, please be sure to subscribe, like, rate, review, all the good stuff wherever you are enjoying Media Path, and we love you for it. And as you can hear, Fritz enjoys it when you make fun at his expense. Yeah. So I think, Fritz, you should do your review first since... Uh, our director, Chris, has it up on the screen. Okay. Oh, yeah. there it is. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I, I want to talk about a book this week. This is a book that haunts me even about three weeks after I finished it. It's called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. It won a Pulitzer Prize for Matthew Desmond, who is a sociologist at Princeton. It's been named one of the top 10 nonfiction books of the last decade. It follows eight families in the poverty-stricken areas of Milwaukee who are struggling to pay rent to their landlords. This is during the financial crisis of 2007-2008. These are people who are floating at or slightly below the poverty line, like Arlene, a single black mom, like Lamar, a black man who lost both of his legs. He's unemployed, but he's still responsible for the care of several kids. And Scott, a gay white male nurse who is who is addicted to heroin. There are combative interactions with landlords. It's the psychological, legal, and discriminatory aspects of being evicted. It walks you through the trauma of being given 24 hours to move when you have no place to move to. I was drawn to this book because I do a lot of work with the homeless at the Salvation Army and Shelter Partnership, which focus on homelessness. In a recent study, They found that the top three reasons for homelessness are mental health, drugs, 
and rent. Even people who are employed sometimes can't afford rent, so they're living in their cars or elsewhere. It's an easy-to-understand primer on housing insecurity, public policy, and racial inequality. I know it sounds dense, but it's not. It's very human. The author is a sociologist and leaves you understand the importance of the concept of home in a person's self-worth. If you don't have home, a safe place for you and your family, you feel you have failed yourself and your family. It continues the cycle of self-doubt, which continues the cycle of poverty. It's a wonderful book. I think it should be a high school or college textbook. Really good. That sounds amazing, Fritz. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's Mm -hmm. important. Uh, I'm going to talk about lessons in chemistry. A few months back, I recommended the book Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. A great book demands a miniseries, and rising to the challenge is Apple TV. They did a little shape-shifting, but I tend to welcome and expect that, as the screen's requirements differ from those of the text. I highly recommend the book and the series. You can do one, the other, or, as is my passion, both. It's a wonderfully innovative story. In the 1950s, Elizabeth Zott's dream of being a groundbreaking scientist is at odds with a society that limits the roles of women to nurse, teacher, secretary, and housewife. Elizabeth is brilliant, but thwarted by convention and circumstances. Presented with an opportunity to host a TV cooking show, our resilient and resourceful hero boldly determines that her show will use recipes as a Trojan horse to impart lessons in life, empowerment, norm subversion, and of course, chemistry. Several changes bring the book to more vivid light on the screen. Most of these adjustments enhance the impact of the themes, including the depiction of neighbor Harriet. In the book, she's a middle-aged Catholic white woman with an abusive husband. The series presents her as a young black lawyer who is fighting to save her neighborhood from redlining in the form of the 10 freeway being routed to run through and obliterate her neighborhood. TV Harriet offers a welcome augmentation which shares the reality that the challenges of being an American woman in the 50s were compounded for women of color. The excellent cast includes Brie Larson, Lewis Pullman, and Aja Naomi King. It's an eight-part series on Apple TV. It's it's a beautiful show. Brie Larson is magnificent. She is. I only stopped the three episodes because, as you know, I'm afraid of powerful women. Yeah. So I stopped listening to it there. Yeah, that's why you've only listened to three, no, but, three but, but episodes you, of this you've podcast. Talked, you've made me you've you've bridged it. So I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch it because you, you have to be prepared for some shocking events that occur. Right. And right. I had warm, comforting, approachable words regarding the show. No, you were fantastic. All right, happy to hold your hand through it. I think you will really. You need to continue. Okay. Just cross the rest of the street because I know exactly where you stopped okay. in the street, and you know it's understandable. It's a good thing I did. <laughs> We are quickly approaching November 22nd, the 60th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. Always ready to shine light on this national tragedy is a multi-Emmy winning godfather of reality TV who brought us and co-starred in Real People and has been tirelessly investigating, writing, speaking and filmmaking about the truth behind the assassination of JFK. On November 22nd, the Town Center 5 Theater in Encino will be screening John's third and final docu-presentation, John Barber's and William Shakespeare's last word on the murder of JFK. Welcome, if you will, John Barber. Hey, John, how are you, my friend? Well, I am delighted to see you again, Fritz. Good to see you. Weasley, what a wonderful name. I just love that. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I must compliment the both of you for having this magnificent platform and doing it for the most creative public surfaces, and especially that wonderful book that you mentioned, Fritz, 
just yes. sounds so interesting. Well, thank so you. So what I am going to send to you, mm. I'm going to send you a book, that one book, uh, critic called The Greatest Book Ever Written About Anybody Ever in Show Business. <laughs> Whoa. And, and it's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, mm-hmm. Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout who changed the face of American television. Wow. I will be delighted to see how you react. You don't have to review it, but I am telling you, you are just going to absolutely both love it. So. You know, I, I want to read it because I'll tell you, in, in preparing for this interview, uh, I, you've had an amazing um, sort of origin story and, and, and past. You, you really did. You're from Canada. And, uh, and you know, you started Real People, you and George Slaughter, and that was the beginning of reality no, television. George Slaughter was just an accident. George Slaughter was the Jerry Jones of the show. He owned the, he owned the team, but he <laughs> didn't know how to play the game. I was the quarterback, and I was the team, and I was the creator. Well, that's what I meant to say. Okay, so now you said I came from Canada, so I'm going to give you a quick thumbnail of me so the audience will know a little bit who I am and the wonderful magical mystery truth <laughs> sounds like the Beatles, doesn't it? Of uh, this amazing Canadian rags to American riches story. I was born in the Salvation Army, uh the Salvation Army charity ward in Toronto to two parents who did not want me. Uh, my father deserted us and ran away at 39. My mother brought uh Men that she called my uncle into the house like they were grapes. They came in bunches to bed with her and beat her and board with her. I was out on the streets when I was six years of age. I spent most of my time as a Canadian on a hockey rink. I lived in the theater and I was sustained by watching American movies. One of them, all the Frank Capra movies, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart. Okay. I became the first person on television to review movies on the news. I had the number one show in the history of America, the very first reality show on television, which I created and which I produced it. And I was a head writer and I was one of the hosts of, and we did in the three years that I was the head writer and producer of that show, we did more and more good like you people are doing now. We did in television with that show. We were sp- responsible for getting the Missing Children Act passed. We were responsible for getting a presidential citation for the Navajo Code Talkers. And more important, because it was the most unpopular fake war in American history, the Vietnam War, only a handful of senators wanted the Vietnam Memorial Wall built in Washington, D.C. And I did a story about a professor whose son was murdered one week into Vietnam, and he and his son used to go hunting atop a hill in New Mexico, and he built his own private memorial to his son on that hill. And because of that story, we played a major role in getting the unwanted memorial wall built in Washington, D.C., unwanted because it was an unpopular war 
and designed by an Asian American woman with two strikes against her. Right. But now hundreds of thousands of people a year visit that wall, which we played such a major role in building. Well, that was a great show. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, that, that was a great show. And, and what I loved about it was it was positive and it wasn't manipulative like many of the reality shows are now. But I don't want to waste another second without getting into this fantastic piece of work you did about John F. Kennedy. Uh, first of all, I'm you're, you're a comic, were a comic. And I, I found it interesting that, that two uh, through lines to the investigation of the Kennedy assassination uh, through the uh, conduit of Jim Garrison, who was the district attorney in New Orleans after the assassination, you and Mort Saul, one of the world's great uh, topical comics, literally put your careers on hold to help investigate this. What, what drove two comedians to dedicating their life to this project? I can only speak for myself. And it was all accidental for me, Fritz, because you remember I was the original host of the AM show. Right. Okay. And uh, uh, it was 1969 when Jim Garrison arrested Clay Shaw. And he had the courage to go on television and say, we have solved this crime. We have money exchange. We have the names of the shooters. There will be convictions when we get to court. Now, he didn't get to go to court for two years because the government stood in his way. The media stood in his way. Now, I'm a street kid, and I said, listen, if Garrison has nothing, why don't they let him go and fall on his ass? So when I got the AM show, I, of course, read uh, Rusted Judgment, Mark Lane's book, that he could not get published in the United States. He only got it published because Bertrand Russell the philosopher writer brought him to England and paid him $1,500, became such a hit, it was a hit here. But I wasn't smart enough to book him. I wanted to be the greatest host I could of my second talk show. My first show was an entertainment show in which I introduced Red Fox, which led to his getting Sanford and Son. And that story is all in my book because that's his real name, John Sanford. In any event, I'm in Edmund's bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard that you're well aware of. I see this book, Heritage of Stone. The author is Jim Garrison. I pick it up and read it, Fritz. I don't move for four hours. I learned he has to take time life to the Supreme Court to get the Zapruder film. There is a, a forensic pathologist named Fink who was called in the defense of Clay Shaw and in cross-examination said there is no cross-examination because of a guy in uniform identified as Curtis LeMay, a publicly known hater of John, John F. F. Kennedy. Kennedy. Right. So, now, you know, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed by that. And so right. I called this office to book him, and he said, John, you'll never get away with it. I talked him into coming on the show. He had never been on American television without being unhindered. Wow. Even when he was on the Tonight Show with Carson, the CIA tried to train Carson to drum him, but Garrison still looked into camera and said, elements of our government, the CIA murdered our president. And then he pointed out that it was Lyndon Johnson who said that we will not see this stuff till 2037 and Garrison. Well, let me and, let, let me stop you right hold, there. Hold it a second. Okay, go and ahead. Carson said, "Well, why?" And 
Garrison said, why don't you ask the president, Johnny? And got a huge ovation, okay? So that's when I first met him. But I was fired immediately after I booked him. The, the the records about the Kennedy assassination, the ones that remain, are not to be uh, released until 2035. But uh, several years ago, there was a trove of records that were released. Why weren't they all released at one time? First of all, they're never going to be released. This is an interesting time for you to say this. Because of Oliver Stone's fantastic film, they passed the Records Assassination Act. In October, three years ago, all of the records were supposed to be released. So Trump could have done it, but he caved in. He didn't do it. Biden could have done it. Now, Oliver Stone asked Mr. Garrison if he could tell his documentary story while he was making JFK. And Garrison said, no, I want Johnny Barber because he lost the two best shows in television, AM Los Angeles, and real people trying to tell my story. So in the third film, now the first, the second film is called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy and all the facts you need to know about the murders and everything and the orders is in that film, $2 on Amazon. The first film is free on my site, johnbarbersworld.com. Now the third film with this really interesting title, because when I read uh, when I read Jim Garrison's book, all the titles were out of Shakespeare. That was his first favorite writer. And so when we talked a lot, we always talked a lot about Shakespeare. So when I had real people on September 5th, 1981, number one show in the country, I take my cameras there. I put them on camera for three and a half hours. It was like sitting with Thesis, who is the Greek god of justice. No one is more important than a law enforcement officer like Jim Garrison, who stood up against Lyndon Johnson, the government and the media to try to prove to this country that no one is above the law. I hope you're right. right? Is this the first time this film has been uh, uh, screened in Southern California where we're coming from? at the moment? Yes, because the first Fritz, the first two films are Jim Garrison getting to tell his magnificent story unhindered by anybody. I mean, if you see the second film, you're just, you're going to be carried away because it's fact after fact after fact told by the best storyteller in America, which is, is proven that I, what I did with real people. So that's his story. The third documentary is in two parts. And the first part is my 53 years of spending over almost three quarters of a million dollars of my own money to tell his story on television. And you say, why on earth, John, would you or Mort Saul get involved? I'm telling you, I am trapped by the truth of knowing the story. And if I don't tell the story, I couldn't live with myself. I got Red, Red Fox once said, Heroes aren't born. They're cornered. And I was cornered by the truth of meeting Jim Garrison. So hang on a second. So the thing at the Lamely Theater is going to be two parts. It's the opening part with you to the camera 
and you do this great, you end with this great Shakespeare soliloquy from Hamlet, which is really beautifully acted. I wanted to see you in robes and have a chorus in back of you. <laughs> well, it, it's a parallel story. No, I know, but hey, let me finish. So yeah, that's I'm the opening thing. Story into, oh, have you seen the film? Oh, yeah. Yes. We've seen it. Oh, I didn't know that you saw the film. Yes, we saw the oh, film. We saw God. your opening thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There it is. And that was homage to Jim Garrison. I know. It was very good. It was interesting. We we enjoyed listening to your career. I invited the neighbors in to see your opening thing. It was unbelievable. But tell, So tell me, uh, do you, can you remember right off the top of your head the date that it's screening at the Lamely? Oh, it's the second, twenty-second. Listen, I can't forget anything. It's the anniversary, twenty-second. Just a couple of weeks. Oh, good. It opens on a Wednesday, but my son, who is the executive producer of Criminal Minds, and my wife, without whom there'd been no real people, are gifting me a present, a gift Christmas present, to go down on Saturday, the twenty-fifth, to be at all three screenings: one o'clock, three thirty, and seven thirty to meet and greet the people who are there and possibly do a Q&A with them or take pictures with them Fantastic. to show my gratitude. Well, I'll tell you, uh, uh, you are a, an interesting person who has had a really interesting, colorful career. I was looking forward to talking to you. And I love the fact that uh, your film is going to be a great way for people to reflect back. Because I can tell you exactly where I was the day Kennedy was shot. I was in ninth grade Spanish class at Valley Forge Military Academy. And a messenger came in and said to the teacher, he whispered to him something, something. And the teacher began to cry. And the teacher went out in the hall to collect himself and get the details. And he come back in and said, your parents are all going to pick you up. Uh, the president of the United States has been killed. And I, I'll never forget that. I remember the, the smell in the room. I remember the tears coming down this red-haired lieutenant's face. So everybody is going to be touched by this. And you've done a great piece of work and a great service to that. And you have other thoughts about the conspiracy involving Robert Kennedy and Frank Sinatra and uh, some other Spot Tupac and Biggie and a few other things. Oh my God, you're so well informed. I'm so delighted that we that I was with you and Wheezy. I can't wait for you to read the book because it is a sensational read. And maybe sometime in the future we can be back again to talk show business. Oh no, without Absolutely. question. You've got some great stories to tell. I love to talk about real people because now uh, Byron Allen is a billionaire. And that, that's yeah, and, that's and called global injustice. Is, he was one of the dumbest human beings I ever met. <laughs> but, but and I, I explain why in the book. Oh, okay. compliment him on his great success. No, you know? I, I I talked to him one time. I said, Byron, you know, and I handed him an audition tape when he bought the uh, Weather Channel because you never know. And so I said, Byron, what made you so successful? He said, smiling and dialing. So he sits down at a desk and he just calls people and gets them to participate in these great fiscal adventures. And now he's a billionaire. Now there's a rumor he's going to buy ABC with a consortium of businessmen, which is, I can't even wrap my head around that. Anyway, John, yeah, we got to go. He paid $300 million for the Weather Channel. Oh, my God. But what, what it is that he did, and you know, honest to God, <laughs> as a critic, I must tell you, his shows are to television what potato chips are to good food. <laughs> It's just something to nibble on until something else comes along. <laughs> what he does is he barters. And mm -hmm. he barters a lot of these black shows, and there's some with some comedians. So he gets to keep half of the minutes 
And he gives the shows free to these stations mm -hmm. around the country. And that's the genius of what he does. And I said, you know, when uh, Byron Allen dies, there'll be hundreds of people gathering around his will. <laughs> but when I die, they'll be gathering around my work. But the difference is that Byron Allen in this day and age, when it's so tough to raise a family in this country, when two people have to work and a teacher sees the children more often than the parents see the children, he is creating jobs for hundreds and hundreds oh, no. of people. I don't begrudge anybody's success. If right. We're... Okay. So as long as he can keep to him, he can keep doing that, then bless him. John, right? we'll have you back on. I promise. We're out of time. We're, we're going to have you back on. You've got. I, I want to talk about your career. I want to talk about show business. I want to read his book. I want to read your book. I want to talk about you the. You love it, Weezy. I'm telling you, you'll laugh out loud and you'll cry out. Loud. The great John Barber, everybody. Stay well, my friend. You're still cranking. You've got great energy, and you're getting the good word out there. Thank you so much. We'll talk Great. to you later. Talk okay. to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's introduce Chris Carter. Chris Carter is a musician, a DJ, and a music film producer. He's a founding member of Dramarama, a founder of QM Management, and the host and creator of Breakfast with the Beatles. I guess you're not the creator. I read more about that you stepped in for... Deirdre O'Donnell. Deirdre O'Donnell. Oh, yeah. Oh, there exactly. we go. The yeah. late great. And, mm -hmm. But together... They are celebrating its 40th year. And thank you, Deirdre, for your groundbreaking work, which Chris holds that mantle proudly for you. It's celebrating its 40th year with a series of upcoming live appearances. Please welcome Chris Carter. Yay! One hey, of the most guys. recognizable voices in Southern California. And he comes on at the time of the week when you're assessing the failures of your life. <laughs> And you're and you're trying to make something of yourself, and, and he's playing the greatest music ever composed, "Breakfast with the Beatles" on Sunday mornings on KLOS. And man, you're you've done a great service to this community, my friend. Well, thank and you. And now guys. the whole world, because you're on Sirius XM. Yeah, well, on now, the Beatles yeah, channel. And now the entire podcast community of MediaPath with its oh, reach my God. and its breadth. You just doubled or tripled your audience just after, by being on here. Well, thank you for having after, me. After studying the Beatles and being becoming the preeminent Beatles scholar, are you still learning new things about the Beatles? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, what's All the, the latest, most fascinating thing that you've recently learned? I heard there's a new Beatles single that just <laughs> yeah, came out. Yeah, tell I just us about found that. that out when I came here today. Your assistant <laughs> filled me in. My producer. My producer knows all the tricks. Your producer, yeah. Um, of course, you can learn something about the Beatles because... It's just, it seems like it's unending, but there's always new Beatle books coming out. For instance, we just had an author on last Sunday who did a book on Mal Evans, who was the Beatles' best friend. Mal had been with the boys from the cavern right up to when he was unfortunately shot here in Los Angeles by the LAPD in did 1976. Did he know too much about the JFK assassination? <laughs> I don't want to follow John, your great guest, before, you know, even compete with him there. Um, but, yeah, uh, you always learn something about the Beatles. It's, I love uh, The Secretary. What was that one called? Where Frida. Yes, Frida, Frida Kelly. rocks. Yes. Love She's fantastic. One. There's so much to love. Do you know my cousin Tim Riley? He, he's written some books about yeah. the Beatles, yeah. I, that's your cousin? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's married to my cousin, which makes him my cousin. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a great writer. Cousin Tim. Cousin Tim, sure. <laughs> so, what I like about your shows is, because you've done it for 40 years, even though the Beatles have one of the largest catalogs in pop music history, 
you have to keep it interesting. But you don't do it by uh, instituting new facts every week. You tell stories, which is really great because it draws the listener in. Yeah, there's there's so many different you know ways you can go. And now that I do it, you know, I only did it once a week for so long. You know, here in Los Angeles, and then when the Beatles Channel, you know, started, I guess seven years ago, they asked me to be the Morning Man. So that really changed the game because now I was on, you know, Monday through Friday mornings for three hours, and basically that's sixty songs. If you figure twenty mm -hmm. per hour, there's no commercials, you know, so kind of got to keep it fresh. So what I do is I first look at the calendar. I see what's going on. Is there any anniversaries? Did Rubber Soul come out today in 1965? What were they recording? You know, whose birthday is it? I use all that stuff. And then, you know, you incorporate it in there and you put sets together because like you said, Fritz, you know, we've, we've heard these songs over and over our whole lives. And if you put them in context, I find that it keeps it very fresh because, you know, you put songs, say, from all from 1967 in one set. You know, instead of playing I Want to Hold Your Hand into Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which really wouldn't go well together. They're like two different groups almost, you know. So I try to keep things, you know, thematic. And that's what keeps it fresh, I think. Yeah, playlists are your your passion project. Exactly. And, and I'm wondering uh, if you can share with us some of the coolest uh, song selections to meet a specific moment. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, you have the sad anniversaries of you know losing the Beatles so that's always you know a heavy time because you know the fans are very serious about their fandom you know so you have to respect how they're feeling so every time you know December 8th comes along or you know now that we lost George Harrison not as you know dramatic of a loss but you know still a loss you know you have to treat those occasions delicately and play the right songs and, and, and create the right mood and maybe start in a certain place and then take the listener you know because even though most terrestrial radio or even satellite radio uh, listeners are in and out it's usually 10-15 minutes you know time listening uh, a show like Breakfast with the Beatles you know, our time spent listening when we used to get the ratings come in would be like, you know, an hour and 40 minutes, two hours and 20 minutes. You'd be like, wow, that's that's a long time. It was like appointment, you know, listening. So people that start at the beginning usually keep it on to the end, you know. So you try to take them on a little bit of a journey, you know. So the, the playlists are everything to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have a really hard job because most of the planet, particularly baby boomers, are so emotionally invested in the Beatles. They're all strongly opinionated about the Beatles, and you better have your BS in one sock if you're going to do it well, because they will call you on it. It's like actors who have to portray a living legend who's not dead yet, and nothing they can do is going to be right. right. It's really hard, huh? Yeah, you know, you got to also keep in mind that you're, like you say, you're talking to some of the most educated, diehard fans out there. And at the same time, you're also talking to people that might just have the Beatles one album. That's the only album they have by the Beatles. You know, they love the Beatles, but they don't have all the CDs, you know, all the albums. So you're talking to both, you know, both types of fans, if you will. So you don't want to come on, you know, too educated or too preachy or too anything. You want to keep it fun and keep it, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you want to make sure, like Fritz said, 
you're not ever saying anything that's incorrect. And after all these years, as much as we learn things about the Beatles personally, like you said, do you, you learn new things about the Beatles? What you don't learn really about is the songs and the music and when it was recorded. That's factual. It's mm-hmm. like Bob Costas stuff, right? Yeah. It's like inside <laughs> baseball. It's like, right. you you know, you got to know that Love Me Do came out on October 5th, 1962 on Parlophone. And you got to know, you know, I know the catalog number of the record. I know every day, and that's the things you can't mess around with because, like Fritz Ooh. said, they'll know. You right. know, you Numbers were just talking about night. November twenty second, yeah. nineteen sixty three, right? The day we lost John F. Kennedy. That was the day the Beatles' second album came out with well, the Beatles. I want to same make, day, wow. and I want to make the observation that we need to give producer Dina some credit here because one of the things that we were responding to in the states when we fell in love with the Beatles is we just really needed it because John F. Kennedy had just been murdered Mm -hmm. and we were in a funk. So we were very receptive to something as joyful as these four boys. So it's interesting that you're, you're on the same show together. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of people don't realize it because that record came out in England, their second Beatles album, but it was on that date. It's November 22nd, 1963, that the Beatles' second album came out. So, you know, whenever we have that anniversary, you know, we always have to keep in mind that's the same, you know, the same day. So, so you, you say that the Beatles know nothing about the Beatles. Is that because a lot of us know far more about the Beatles than people tend to know about themselves? <laughs> Well, did I say that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true, though. You know, talk to Mick Jagger, you know, or any musician, and, you know, Mick Jagger will say, you know, uh, yeah, Brown Sugar. Well, what is that on? Exile on Main Street? Like, they don't know. It's, it's only one year off. No, Mick, it's on Sticky Fingers. Came out there. Um, Paul's the same way. You know, they'll sometimes say, you know, in one interview that they wrote a song in one place, and then some, uh, oh, they wrote it over here. John will say, oh, we wrote that at Paul's house, and John, you know. So they, you know, of course, I mean, your own life, you know the least about sometimes because you're living it. I was in a band, Dramarama, and for the life of me, you know, like we were on It's Fritz when our <laughs> album uh, Stuck in Wonderama Land came out. But when I have to think of what year that came out, I'm a little hazy. It's like 88 or 89. Yeah, one of those. A Dramarama fan will be like, come on, man, it came out in 1989, <laughs> the same way I know every Beatle record. But when you're doing it, you know. You move on to the next. You're thing. living. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about drama rama because you were on my TV show, and man, I have great memories of that TV show. And it's funny. It's uh, it's five degrees of separation from Fritz Coleman. He mentioned Byron Allen, and the reason why that show was canceled is because Byron Allen came in with uh, live at the Apollo Theater and did exactly what uh, he said he did. He comes in and does a barter. He said, if you will play two Chevy commercials at either end of the show, I'll give you the show for free. So you can put all your own advertising in there. And our show costs thirty or $40,000 a week. And my boss said, I love you to death, but I can't pass up a free show. So can't that's compete. why the show. Oh. Yeah. And Lawrence Juber was your... Uh, was our band leader. Come your, on, man. Your, your Doc Severinsen yeah. over there. It was amazing. <laughs> I want to ask you one thing, because, oh my God, I don't know how you have time to do all this. So you do Breakfast with the Beatles. That's once a week. Right. And then you're on Sirius XM every morning doing the morning show on Monday the Beatles Monday through Friday. Channel, and you also do 
Chris Carter's British Invasion. Saturday and Sundays. Yeah, and little your, Stevens underground. Little, yeah, yeah, little Steven. I love that guy. Yeah. I love him, and I love the fact that he brings these obscure R and B hits back from the fifties and sixties. And he did. He tried to make a Broadway show out of one of my favorite bands, The Young Rascals. Yeah. And that yeah. fell apart. I don't know why. But I want to ask you because the same re- the same reason that they broke up in real. This, this, they oh. were telling a story, yeah. right? <laughs> they were doing yeah. a show of their life, the story of the band, right? And in the story of the band, they they break up, right? Because mm-hmm. these guys are... <laughs> so they get back together, and then the same guys in the same story have a fight, and they break up the same, and Stephen like, just, you like know... It's like chemical elements they when relive you put the them history. together. Yeah, <laughs> it was just in, it was insane. We had Felix Cavalieri on here. Couldn't yeah. have been a nicer, nicer guy. Nicest yeah. guy. He yeah. really is a wonderful guy. But uh, about the British invasion, I mean... I think I'm, I'm interested to get your opinion about this and who you feel other than the Beatles were the, were the I think it was the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Yardbirds, Clapton, those guys. But I think the greatest impact of the British invasion was that they the blues based guys like the Stones and Clapton reintroduced American kids to the music that came from their earth. Right. And what happened was it was it was young teenage or early 20 year old British cats playing, you know, American blues. And of course, they're the opposite of American blues. You couldn't think of a more opposite, right? So that hybrid all of a sudden became this music, which was the Rolling Stones playing the blues like black guys, and it ended up turning into, you know, what we got. And the same with the Beatles. They were all, you know, everybody was imitating. I always say about the Beatles, you know, they... They were imitating R&B when they started yeah. and Twist rock and, and roll. shout, all those great then, R&B songs. When folk music and you know Dylan and all that came along, the Beatles started to do that, uh, imitate that. And it wasn't really until Sgt. Pepper, the psychedelic era, that the Beatles actually created their own music. Yes, In other exactly. words, you know, we 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 think I want to hold your hand and she loves you was like you know really. The Beatles invented that, but they were just imitating the stuff that they yeah. loved. And what, it, yeah. Like the Stones, it just came out that way. Yeah. But what but, you have to remember is that they were growing up. When we met them, they were still in the middle of forming self. Right. And any great performer or artist has to imitate before they innovate. Mm-hmm. And so we caught them in that phase where yeah. they were imitating and they were getting their 10,000, 20,000 hours in. And then they were ready to create, and we were ready for that. Yeah, and about that blues thing, I I, I don't know if it was the Clapton thing, Twelve Bars, uh, you know. The, yeah, that's good. Or one of those documentaries where he made a really interesting point. He said, "What what is it that attracted you to American blues when you were a late teenager?" He said, "We well, got to remember Britain." After the Blitz was bombed out in World War II, their economy was in shambles, their self-esteem was in shambles, so we really related to the themes and the feeling of American blues music. Well, they loved everything yeah. American. Yeah. It wasn't just the blues. I mean, they loved, you know, they loved cowboy movies. You know, mm-hmm. the, the Beatles, you look at, you know, the back of Rubber Soul, they have cowboy hats on, you know, they're, they're all, they, they love that stuff. They loved anything about America to them it was just big and exciting and, you know, uh, but when you like we were just talking about those different styles of music, the other thing when people ask, how did the Beatles, you know, why were the Beatles so good? Why did they last, you know, the, the, as long as they did? And it's because every couple of years they would completely Re-invent. change who they were. Yeah. You know, you had the mop top Beatles like we were. And then you had the folky Beatles and then you had the Sgt. Pepper Beatles two years later. I mean, you look at Sgt. Pepper and I want to hold your hand. It's only three or four years 
and it's like a completely different band. And then the White Album, they stripped away all the psychedelia and became a rock and roll band because Cream and those blues bands were doing it. You know, that's that was the uh, that was the the trick. You know, they uh, never stayed the same. Look at the Dave Clark Five; they were always the same. <laughs> it didn't matter. Right. They never evolved, really. Which brings up a question for me: How much of their uh, experimentation? And they're moving to other genres and including other genres and all the, they changed rock music engineering as well. How much of that was George Martin? Was George Martin just giving, doing what they dreamed or was he saying, no, let's try this? They would have never, post-1966, they would have never been able to pull off what they were trying to pull off without George Martin. Yeah. And, you know, John Lennon, benefited greatly because of both Paul McCartney and George Martin and their kind of level-headedness, you know. John would come up with these crazy songs that were, you know, one, they would shift keys in the middle, you know, Strawberry Fields Forever and, and A Day in the Life and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. But with those two guys, you know, working with John, you got these classic, fantastic pieces of work. I mean, A Day in the Life is an incredible song, you know. Um, but without Paul McCartney and George Martin to kind of rein John Lennon in, you know, and that's what that excuse me, that was the that was the wonderful combination. So George Martin was, you know, essential to every aspect of their records. So know. in the States during that time period, we had the wrecking crew and there really weren't any bands that had that kind of freedom of creation in the studio with a producer that would sit with them and say, hey, let's try this or let's try that. It was like more, you know, the track is here, come in and sing on it, you know, go out in the road and play it live. And then in the 70s, with the singer-songwriter era, we, we began to have that with Carole King and James Taylor, Jackson Brown, etc. So do you think that was a big factor in the Beatles' creativity, that they had those opportunities? That they had the opportunities to... Create in the studio with George Martin and play oh. on their own records. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. They, um, you know, they... If you go, if you look at where they were recording, first of all, it was it was it was the most unappealing situation you could think of. You know, I mean, they would the Beatles would put like a little red gel over a light just to give it a little warmth. You know, because it was just so big and kind of bright and stark. It was like a gymnasium in there. You know, for at EMI. Um, but as they progressed, you know, the Beatles were allowed to start working past midnight, and they were allowed to bring food in, and you know, they became more at home. In the studio, in the beginning, you know, they had to bang it out. The first record, you know, Please Please Me, they did 90% of it in one day. You know, they did about nine or ten songs on February 11th, 1963, one day. You know, I'm the Walrus took two weeks, you know. It's like, so that was a huge difference. And all that experimental stuff like Sgt. Pepper and the albums before that and the White Album, did they have to answer to the record companies, or were they just such mm. entities on their own that we'll just take whatever you give us, hand us the tape? They never had to answer to a record company because in England they were signed to Parlophone, right, EMI. That was their major company. And in America, Capital did their distribution. So what happened with the record company, as, as we know now, which we didn't really know at the time when we were, were buying the records in the 60s, they were different records. We were getting different records than the Beatles were really releasing, you know. 
the Beatles would put out a record called Beatles for Sale, and they would put out with the Beatles. But we got, you know, the Beatles Six, and we got Yesterday and Today, and we got all these records that didn't come out in England. They, how was that? How was that possible? I got Meet the Beatles. Meet the Beatles, little. right? Meet the Beatles was the first record on Capitol that yeah. we got, which they took songs from the second Beatles album, the one that came out the day we lost JFK. If you look at that record, it's the same record. It's like the Beatles' Four Faces, and all the songs are kind of the same, or they took a few from here. And then as they progressed the years, you know, they would just put these American records out that had all songs from different records on them. So when the poor Beatles would come to America, they never knew what they'd go. <laughs> this next one's uh, from Beatles 6, they, 9, Beatles 9. They would make jokes like, we don't know what the hell to do. Because wow, that the, seems like it's not legal. No. Right. And then once... Revolver after Revolver came out, then all the records were the same from then on. So if you uh -huh. bought Sgt. Pepper in England, you bought the same Sgt. Pepper in America. But if you bought Revolver in England, right? Revolver, album we love, right? If you look at Revolver that we grew up with, it has two John Lennon songs on it. The whole Beatles album has two John Lennon songs on it. The real Revolver that came out in England has five John Lennon songs on it. So why do, you know? Wow. Beatles so, hated it. So, so. do co collectors currently have to have both versions? Of Once everything? CDs came out in the 80s, they came out the way the Beatles put them out. And then you're like, oh, there aren't this many Beatle albums. There were so many. <laughs> it was so confused. The Beatles' second album, the Beatles' It was confusing. But they really only put, you know, out Please Please Me and with the Beatles and then Hard Day's Night. Simple. It's one a year. True. Two. Letters that you receive and now emails and whatever and reaction from the public. What body of work, what 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 album, what time period in the Beatles' career do you think fans most love and most revere? I think it's a it's a bit of a toss up. Um, Abbey Road seems to be over the years to be the album the majority of the people relate to. It's, you know, the best produced Beatles album. It was the last Beatles album, even though Let It Be came out before, you know, they were recorded before it came out after it. Um, people do love Rubber Soul. That's my personal favorite. And and we were talking about the American versus the British. The American version of Rubber Soul, which was the first album I ever owned, um, was I think the, the, a perfect record, the, perf the perfect record. And again, the Beatles didn't pick this, so they took songs from Help and made their own rubber soul, but it's the perfect record in my book. So um, Capitol did one good thing after they put the rubber soul album out. So and that's I'm a favorite of a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in relationships. And of course the Lennon McCartney relationship is legend, but every relationship is its own unique universe. So talk to us a little bit about the relationship between say George and John or between like now it's very important between Paul and Ringo. Well, Ringo is the one Beatle who was out with friends with everybody. Everyone, yeah. Never had really a falling out, even though George slept with his wife. There was a little falling out, but not that bad. Um, Ringo, you know, was on everybody's records, you know, um, and you know, you never saw George Harrison on a Paul McCartney record. Yeah, those two. Those were they were the, you know, of of the four. You know, George was a rough character. John was a rough character. Both of them, you know, very sarcastic and, uh, you know, could be vicious guys that, you know, whereas Paul, Paul 
was not that way, you right. know, as a rule. He's what, and Ringo. What, what, what well, when you, read, when you learn about the, 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 the beginning of Lennon's life, man, he had a rough life. Yeah. John so always did, had a little so chip on his shoulder, you know. I mean, Paul lost his mother. Yeah. They both lost their mothers it's very Paul's young. demeanor, it didn't, you know, if a lot of people with a, a loss of a parent react, you know. But Paul would be the one example of someone, if, if you could rise above it and move on and be upbeat in life, you know, Paul's the the blueprint for that, you know, Paul was the guy, even when they went to Germany, you know, Paul was the guy who would talk with the club owner and say, hey, what time are we on, you know? You know, George and John, they, they, you talk to the, talk to, you talk to the club owner, you know? That's Paul, you know, Paul, if, Paul gives you two minutes, he makes you feel like he's really in, you know, Fritz, I love the, you know, the greatest weatherman, right, right? You know, oh. he gives you the thing and he walks on to the next guy and does it, but that's Could Paul. Could you have he's, him say that to Fritz for he, me, please? Sure. Man, that would be great. That new documentary that I think is on Hulu with uh, Rick Rubin. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And you just see that he's got such a heart. So and he's much enthusiasm. Yes, and yeah. he's got his, he's listening to his own music and getting excited about it and remembering little things they did in the studio, and that right. just shows his character. Well, look at that. These guys don't have to go out and play, you know? Both Ringo with his all-stars, you know, and Paul, who puts on two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour shows, for gosh sakes, you know? They don't have to do this. They do this because they love it. They really love it. I mean, imagine being Paul. Every time you go out of your house, everybody goes, Paul! They, you know, they must appreciate... He, 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 he likes it. He's they <laughs> must appreciate what you have done for their legacy. And I, I hope they treat you with respect when they come to town and talk to you or anything, because man, oh man, they're, you've kept they're, the dream they're, alive. They're, they're fantastic. They're always... Uh, Ringo just did a little thing for me on my phone, you know, for the 40th. And 40 years, Chris, you work too hard. You know, he did a whole thing, you know. <laughs> oh, my Ringo God. Ringo looks great. Ringo looks younger than ever. He's yeah. got, like, his hair he grew. You know, he's, his like, hair a, is cute he's like a beatnik. He's like, yeah. you know, Manor G. Krebs or something. He's like, <laughs> he's like Ringo, man. Give him some bongos. You know, he's got a little goatee. He's, he's on the road. That all-star band is always out, right? They're, they're always working. And like I said, they don't have to. They, they, he loves it. And Ringo, Ringo sings better now than he ever sang in his life. Wow. He's, 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 his voice is great. And he, he keeps making these EPs, you know, yeah. with just four songs, which is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Why make 14 songs? Nobody's going to, you know what I mean? Get, put out four and everybody pays attention to them, you know? Well, I'm really interested in the emotional and psychological impact of facing international fame while your mind is busy forming your sense of self. So... During much of the Beatles' run, these guys would have still been on their parents' health insurance, you know? So mm-hmm. how does this level of exaggerated praise or and or scrutiny affect one's development? Do you think, like we talked about Paul, he's never walked into a room that that he hasn't stopped. Right. Right? They, um, you know, entertainment back then was, was different. You know, um, there was like a level of professional... Um, I don't know, demeanor that, that used to have when you, you, you see them, you know, when you were on the Ed Sullivan show, you'd see that the boys would all kind of behave, they have their little suits on and everybody would behave and they had a manager and, you know, a hard day's night was a perfect example of it. Boys, come on boys, you know, it's like, that was really their life, you know. Was that in, Brian Epstein? Yeah, yeah you know, Brian and, and, and none of them had any experience. You know, I mean, they played Germany. Okay, they played a bunch of shows in some bars, you know, with strippers and stuff. But to them, Brian was fancy, and they were working class. Yeah, they were old school showbiz professionals. That's how they were brought into it. Yeah. So I think they always kind of kept that, you know, even though, you know, the hippie movement came along and everybody grew their hair and everybody kind of 
freaked out a little bit. They still knew they still knew they were entertainers and they had, you know, they started their own company, Apple, you know, they wore, wear suit jackets. They went on the Tonight Show to tell, you know, Joe Graziola was the host instead of Johnny the night that Paul and John went on the Tonight Show, oh of all things, yeah. Wow. And, uh, and Tallulah Bankhead, who was drunk, was the other one. It was Tallulah Bankhead and Joe Graziola and John Lennon and Paul McCartney expecting, you know, Johnny Carson. Oh, <laughs> they, yeah. like, they got it. Yeah. So, you know, so they were trying to be professionals right. and 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 they were again, like you said, they're they're just in their 20s for gosh sakes, you know. They're doing all this in their 20s. Right. If you, if, you, if you look at their catalog, I think I tried to figure it out with my daughter and my grandchildren. They're working on their fourth generation of fans. Well, this is what blows my mind. That yeah. I always say this. Imagine in the 70s or 60s for you, 70s for me when I was you know, a teenager growing up, right? Imagine if someone said, hey, we're gonna put this radio station on and listen to music from 60 years ago, which would have been 1910 in the 70s, right? right? You'd be like, I'm not gonna listen to music from 1910, but that's what we play every day on the yeah. Beatles channel. 60, 50-year-old hey, young kids, also, and she knows it as well as anybody does because she taught my children how to play drums and guitar. They love the Beatles. But your yeah. child doesn't listen to it and say, like the way we would have if someone played us some that's because music from records, 1910. Chris, records <laughs> like, in 1910 were not that good. They were Well, they that's recorded. my point. That's that's yeah. you're but, you're listening to this music that was from so long ago. I mean, but the music at, from 1910 may have been extraordinary live. They just weren't able to capture it on a record. It wouldn't have interest. It wouldn't be able to hold the interest. It wouldn't be the number one record. I think Stephen Foster has of, some grooves, man, <laughs> that I dig. Yeah. That could be, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's just like the Beatles songs are still. I mean, half of our audience in the mornings are kids going to school because I get yeah. all these emails, and I, I mean. Sometimes I get not tired of it, but I'm like, you know, my seven-year-old son knows every Beatles song and he's birthday. And I, I do kids shout outs like I'm Soupy Sales, like it's a kid's <laughs> show. But it's like, it's the Beatles, you know? No, it's like, it is. And and the, like the songs that Wheezy taught my son how to play guitar to were some of the early Beatles songs because mm -hmm. they're, they're easy riffs to five, remember. Four or five chords. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's Never, his, it never dies. And his son became a, a great guitar yeah, player. Great guitarist. Yeah. And think about this when you go, the other thing about the Beatles were, okay, you had seven-year-olds who loved them. Mm -hmm. At the same time, 17-year-olds loved them, right? Think of any other entertainment mm -hmm. or any act or book or song or anything mm -hmm. that is what a seven-year-old loves, a 17-year-old loves. They're always complete, you know. And, and if you go see Paul McCartney in concert, you oh, see families oh, yeah. with kids. You'll we see some together. guy with a tie-dye shirt and a big gray ponytail. We took You'll his see kids. Every, we took his kids. You see Everyone's every. There. If you go see the Stones, you don't oh. see no. any families with kids singing Sister Morphe. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's so Paul Paul yeah. still carries that that yeah. same yeah. that same thing you know, that the Beatles had. It's eternal. Them. It is eternal. And even parents love the Beatles, and you know, my mother would love. Oh, that Michelle is a nice song yeah. back in 1960. They so you got, had all these people liking the same. It's they very got Dean rare. Martin covers, you know. So, right, and right. It's very approachable. But who likes Dean Martin? Only a certain age like Dean Martin. You know, right. seven-year-olds weren't digging no, Dino, no. but the seven-year-olds loved Yellow Submarine, and so did a twenty-year-old. So right. that's fanciful. That's, that's the, because the melody. There's melody. Yeah. There's harmony. And right. That's but you can't really. You'd be hard-pressed to think of another band 
person that can transcend that that age group at the time too. At this is at the time, you know, teenagers. And- I don't think that like I've made this point before because our direction, uh, our attention is diverted and it's diffused. I don't think there will ever again be anyone on the planet as famous. Not, the word famous is kind of harsh, but as well known to every world citizen as the Beatles, as Frank Sinatra, as Elvis. That's it. We're not going to produce somebody as well known because we're looking into well, many I, different. Have you heard of this Taylor Asia. Swift? I, oh, I hear she's up God. to some. I just good looked at the top work. ten to see if the Beatles, because it now and then hit number one in England last week, which was a big deal for the Beatles. Right? Yeah. They hit number one for the first time since 1969. Well, let's the talk Ballad about of John and Yoko was the last Beatles single to hit number one in let's England. Talk let's talk about, about the new, that. The new so, so I looked in, I looked in the Billboard charts to see, okay, where's the Beatles, and they hadn't entered yet. But I looked at the top ten, and Taylor Swift had eight of the ten Crazy. songs. I said, oh, this can't. I'm looking at the wrong list. This must be the downloading list <laughs> or something. But it was this the Billboard Hot Hundred yeah. singles. Yeah. I mean, that's wow. un. Heard. I've been looking at the singles charts my entire life, but I've never seen anybody have eight out of ten songs in the top ten. Well, she's caught the soul of us all, hasn't she? But talk about the the new Beatles song. How how did it come to be, and what is it? Okay, well, John Lennon had some piano demos he was working at at on in the end of the 70s, and two of them were released already, Free as a Bird and Real Love. They came out already. And what happened there was the other three Beatles added parts to John's piano part. And then we lost George, Mm -hmm. and there was only Paul and Ringo left. And there was one more song, and it was called Now and Then, but George didn't like it, and he thought it was just not that great. And they had worked on it with Jeff Lynn, who was the engineer, uh, who was the producer at the time. One of the fifth Beatles. Yeah, one of the fifth Beatles. He's the ninth Beatle, Jeff (laughs) Lynn, actually. so it just never it just never came out, and there had been tapes of it floating around. And the problem with it was that John, when he recorded his piano, did it on a cassette, you know, tape back in 1979, and there was noise and all this stuff, and it was, they couldn't separate his voice from the piano. So if you wanted to fix his voice and clean it up and put echo on it, you'd be putting echo on the piano because it was on the same track. Mm. So bounce back here to. 2023 and Peter Jackson the guy who did the get back documentary came up with this you know machine this AI machine that can separate everything and he could separate the voice from the piano so now they had John's voice over here and that crappy piano and all the noise over here so they could give it a fair shot this time and sadly George wasn't here but he was the one who didn't like it so Paul and Ringo said hey you know let's finish it and they called George Martin's son Giles Martin, and he came in and they fixed it all up and Paul put bass on it and Ringo put drums on it and then Paul played a slide guitar solo kind of mimicking George, so in in his memory, and uh, fixed the whole thing up and then they put it out and, you know, it's number one. (laughs) They put it out as a single? They put it out as a single on November 2nd and I got to premiere it on the Beatles channel at nine in the morning. And And how do you like it? I love it, you know, and here's the thing about it. it. You know, it wasn't, John didn't write it, you could tell, it wasn't, it's not a hit single, mm-hmm. okay? You know, there's songs that, you know, Sexy Sadie is a song on an album, it's not a hit single, it's a mm-hmm. great song. Mm-hmm. 
it's an album track is what it is. Mm -hmm. But being it's the Beatles' new song, they've kind of put the – so it's not, you know, it's not something you dance to. It's a, it's a kind of interest – you know, it's a deep song. It's a, it's, a, it's a good song. It's a Beatles song. Um, and it is a number one single, so whether – John planned that or not, it is now. So I'd love to get your thoughts on Get Back because I'm just obsessed with it. Oh, fantastic. You know, I always say if you, uh, Peter Jackson's a talented guy, and true talented people are usually like half geek. You have to be a geek to begin with, like really be into something and then have a lot of talent. When you mesh the geekness and the talent, you get wonderful work. So Peter Jackson is the kind of geek who could sit through an, you know, an 156, you know, hours, 156 hours. I mean, just think about like that's the thinking of 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 dialogue, and you know, 56 hours of footage, and then put it all together. There was just talking. There was just so. I mean, literally, it's a lot of talking to listen to listen to every word of it. And after he did that, he put it together, and he and the you know the talented part of him met with again the geek part, and you got this fantastic thing because you have to sit through that to know what you had to work with because no one would ever do it. And also, what are you creating? All these, because... all these tapes in 69, but no one would listen to them. Now, imagine, but like, the, you had this gold. But, but the other thing is that the bar for what makes a documentary is lowered, not in quality, but in quantity of what you would include when it's the Beatles ordering the sandwich. You mm -hmm. That wouldn't be in your documentary, usually. But if it's the Beatles, you do want to know if Ringo would prefer a pickle. These are things that are interesting to us and because Ringo it's the Beatles. Past gas, did you hear that? So that's There was a scene that oh, they left God. it in, so you're, you're right. But you just, you just there feel must have been like meetings you're... about that. Should we leave the gas in? Should we take it out? <laughs> gas in, gas out. It Let's shows that they're cuts. real people. <laughs> yeah, Peter Jackson is a geek in the film area, too. He did that right. documentary about the veterans of World War One, the British thing, where they reprocessed the video. Oh, and oh yeah. my God, they look like they just shot the thing in your backyard an hour ago. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable. The time that it takes to do these things is incredible, yeah. which is, again, not to go back to it, but since 1969, there had been all these tapes of the Beatles, right? And there's the Beatles that no one would listen to. I mean that's that that in itself wow. is amazing, and yeah. I guess you know not not many people had the opportunity to listen to him, but just the fact that that exists, like that there would be like five hundred hours of Elvis tapes somewhere, you know, that no one eh, no one's had the time to listen to those Elvis tapes. That would never happen, but like it, it, it that was really the case. It that was, was just case. so tedious. It was audio recordings of the volume of people talking in a studio, and it's like you know. Yeah, but it kind of reminded me of Summer of Soul in a lot of ways. Did, wait, yeah, that was what? a cool story. This has too. gone undiscovered, right? Yeah. And here it Won is. Won him an Oscar. That was great. Yeah. He had so, to listen to it to get to, to get Talking it. about documentaries, the late 60s and early 70s, we're in L.A. now, was the uh, was the quintessential moment of L.A. Southwestern music. And the street that housed that phenomenon was Sunset Boulevard. I think the best documentary about that period of time is called The Mayor of Sunset Boulevard, oh, yeah. which is about Rodney Bingenheimer, who is a legendary jock at KROQ, who broke a lot of the Southern California music, The Doors and The Eagles and all these bands that played at the Rainbow Room, The Whiskey and all those places. And you were the producer of that documentary. That was a great piece of work. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, 
seven years of seven years of work, and we shot it on film, oh, real wow. film. Yeah. I uh, I was friends with Rodney Bingenheimer, and he broke my band, Drama Rama, and he was a guy who would call me three times a day, 365 days a year. Didn't matter. It was <laughs> New Year's Day, Christmas. You know, we we were tight, and I and I watched his life, and I would watch him just sit on his couch, and you know. Jimmy Page would call and say, oh, I'm coming into town over here. And, you know, three months would go by. He wouldn't talk to anybody. And, you know, Paul McCartney would say, oh, we're having a party. Invite Rodney. And Rodney would say, I, I saw this guy's life. And I was like, my God, what a, what a crazy life. He broke a lot of music. And I said, you know, he needs a documentary. So I found George Hickenlooper, who did Hearts of Darkness, The Making of Apocalypse Now, which is better than Apocalypse Now, The Making of Apocalypse mm -hmm. Now. Yeah. I got to see Dennis Ooh. Hopper go crazy and all this yeah. Martin Sheen and all that stuff. But he made that documentary, so I said, I'm going to get a guy to direct my Rodney movie who isn't a rock and roll. I, I didn't want to get a rock and roll guy. I wanted a guy who would look at all this stuff and from a different point of view. So long story short, I got George Hickenlooper to uh, to direct it, and uh, we were nominated for uh, you know Independent Spirit Award. For, yeah, uh, it was a great film. Best, Where's uh, that documentary. doc available now? Every, oh, it's, it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Mayor of the Sunset Strip. Mayor of the Sunset Strip. Rodney yeah. Bingenheimer, just a great guy. Very Everybody's in that. it. There's like everybody in Rod, yeah. like Bowie's in it. Cher is in it. Yeah. Oasis is in it. The Ramones are in it. Alice Cooper. And a couple of things. The guy that owned the Rainbow Room just passed away like a week yeah. ago. Yeah, they, But he owned all those clubs, right? He owned the Whiskey and the Rainbow Room and all yeah. those. Yeah, uh, because I, I met a waitress that worked for him for years and said he was a lovely man. Second of all, one of the great... Um, one of the great myths that somebody uh, blew up for me was that I always thought that the Buffalo Springfield song, for what it's worth, was written about Kent State. It was not. No, it was about written the about sunset the, the strip, Sunset yeah. Strip demonstrations during yeah. that period of time. You're thinking of Ohio. Yeah, or, or, or Mike no, I, no, still I'm sorry. I just thought it was about the Vietnam War, or it was just the darkness of you know us against them, and I had no idea yeah, that yeah. that was about the Sunset Strip. Uh huh. Rise. Yep. Yeah. Well, now you're going to have to explain the Sunset Strip riots because there's kids listening to this who are going to want Well, that was it. a period. Well, I don't know. Everybody was, was going out to the Strip, you mm -hmm. know, hanging out. 67, 66, started in 66. It, this, it evolved, you know. If you look at the Strip in 65 and 66, it was completely different. It was white pants and kind of Beach Boys people. And then by 67, clubs, it just became, you know. Zeros. Yeah, it just became a, a whole different trip, you know. It yeah. was just the whole, the whole hippie thing. Really, kind of started there, so how more does it or less. So, create a riot? What happens? Well, there was just the cops would come out, and the kids would be, you know, Rowdy. they would just be hanging. They weren't doing. They weren't protesting or anything. They would protest later because of the cops, <laughs> but they were just hanging. They would just hang out, and the cops would come and they would try to pull curfews and try to get. And the kids would react, and you know, Stephen Stills was just taking a look at it. You know, it's from, my favorite. Buffalo Springfield yeah. song, I just love that song. So yeah. Those guys met on the Sunset Strip, you know, Stephen Stills and Neil Young, and, you know. Okay, I like to think that I gave Drama Rama their big break in show business. <laughs> yeah. Drama Rama is this great band, so interesting. And up until I read your biographical information, although I can hear it in your accent, you still have your New Jersey yeah. accent, that uh, you started in Jersey and then came out, Drama Rama came out here in what year? 86. 
And then you were on my TV show in 89. Yeah. And there's a great piece of video of your performance on It's Fritz. It's Fritz. Really? We were we were honored to be yes. on It's Fritz. Yeah. I was going to I was going to say I was Let's if find Fritz that, Chris. Forgot about it after Drama Rama. If, if you look up Drama Rama, it's like the first thing in the YouTube stack. <laughs> but let me tell you something about that. It was a brilliant idea that we sort of backed into on that show. It was bands like yours and another band that it was locally hot, Mary's Danish, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and Stevie Salas Color Code, because he was part of Oingo Boingo or something. And all these bands that were hot locally, and the and the record companies, Warner Brothers and Universal and all these, were trying oh, to man. F- find... Look, Fritzy, there's you. Oh, yeah, that's oh, right. Man. Oh, you got the Andy Williams going for you Yeah, there. I do. Oh, what do you see? Sweater. Where do you see this hair? Oh, my God, I got yeah. some hair, I think. You just yeah. need some Christmas lights, and you're good. Hey, baby, look at that. Is that you? No, he's no, the bassist. I'm on the bass. Oh, who's this guy? I got a green shirt. I think that's John Easdale, the singer. John, okay. Yeah. His hair is epic. But anyway, these record companies saw my little local TV show as a great chance to get bands their first tape, right? So that they could learn how to do the TV and stuff, and it worked out. And then after like bands like yours, we had people coming to us wanting to put their band on. We didn't even have to book them. It was fantastic. And how did you hook up with Lawrence Juber? Do you Lawrence remember? just well, uh, 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 the the Housewives, which was the band, you know, the female group that his sort yeah. of a, a satire women's right, right, right. pop band sang on our show one time, oh. and he came with her. And Lawrence is God Almighty. He's There's great. no more. He just had a birthday on Sunday. Oh, I, I, I love him to death, and he gave our band so much credibility. We had Lawrence Juber, we had uh, Bruce Gary. That's right, the, Bruce Gary, the drummer for That's the. That's right. He passed away. We had oh my God, it was awful. I remember when that happened. Yeah. And we had the keyboardist for Bonnie Raitt. We had uh, Phil Chen, who was Rod Stewart's bassist. Yes. We had that. That was my house band. That was a great. And band. then Byron Allen comes in and blows my show off the air. So I'm at oh, least we're as bitter as Byron. that. <laughs> wow, this is a full circle I'm sorry. moment. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. Anyway, I, I it was love, really cool. My favorite part of today's show was when you mentioned Byron Allen and John said what he said. So we'll just leave it there and <laughs> no, move on. No. Ah, anyway. So this is, we want to talk about, you may not have these dates memorized, but I do have them on an iPad right in front of my face. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to be doing Breakfast with the Beatles live. In-person broadcasts. So you're okay. Gonna be at, you're going to be on November. No, that passed. So you already did We're one. We're going to be at the Hard Rock next. Yeah. So it's the 14th as we record this. So next is at the Casino Morongo. Oh, yeah, am baby. I at Morongo? On, on December 17th. Casino Resort and Spa. Cabazon. <laughs> and it's going to be Free the spa tw- for you, 280th episode of Breakfast with the Beatles on terrestrial radio since its inception. So where else? What am I missing? What happens... This will be posted on the 16th. Okay. Yeah. There are two dates in December. You have the Hard Rock again. I got the Hard Rock coming up in December. And the Kobe. Kobe Steakhouse in Sunny Seal Beach. Yes. Nice, nice, nice. So what happens when people come out? What What do they see? Well, they see me up on stage, and we have a little, you know, table set up with all sorts of cool Beatles stuff that I bring from home and uh, we just broadcast live and we have a lot of audience interaction we ask our quiz question of the morning and you know we have a guy who goes out and asks a question we give stuff away we have a lot of uh, live you know performances uh, we have guests Mickey Dolans was just on from mm-hmm. from the monkeys I opened for him the last monkey yeah uh, he's a great guy He's a fantastic singer, Mickey. Mm-hmm. He's great. Yeah, great voice. So we have, you know, guests on, and uh, it's a lot of fun. And we usually, you know, are sold out. Oh, so. I would think so. I would so. imagine so. Fun. That's exciting. Yeah. 
All right. So I'm going to read our closing credits. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention before I do so? Gosh, just thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Come on, man. You're, you're one of the great, iconic broadcasters of Southern California. Yeah, we would. It's such a pleasure to have you on here. And I, I just love your passion for what you do. It's, it's, it is a great job. I mean, come on. It's playing the Beatles. What was it about the Beatles? <laughs> what, I mean, what, what's, uh, you, it, uh, were they your greatest uh, fanship of all time? Oh, yeah. They were the first for me, you know. I didn't see the Ed Sullivan show. You know, I missed it by that much, you know. Um, but I did see Let It Be in the movie theater when I was when I was 11 at the Preakness Movie Theater in Wayne, New Jersey. And that was like my real, that was my Ed Sullivan show. I just got to watch the Beatles and Let It Be all by myself in a movie theater. And I was I was hooked for life. And, you know, once you like the Beatles, everybody else, you know, you're, the bar is set so high, you know. That's the problem with us kids that grew up in the, you know, 60s and 70s. Oh. You know, you got to be better than Bob Dylan, the Kinks, the yeah. Beatles, the there Rolling was no Stones. Better period in yeah, music. so when you listen to other things after, you know, you're like, yeah, well, this is okay, but it's not as good as you know. Uh, and and you know that I I I I said that to my kids. That was a period of time when they weren't afraid to be experimental with radio. There was like KMET and all these, right. you know, these alternative stations where they go, I mean, deep cuts like play a whole album side and not talk. No more. You're not exposed to any of that stuff anymore. No, it's, it's, the music is different. It's treated differently now. Well, it's now received it's, differently. Yeah, so. it's like running water now. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the same, you know. You used to own a record and you used to sit with it and look at it and read it. Yeah. You never knew what people in bands spoke like before MTV. Did you know what Jimmy Page talk like? No, no. you didn't. You never saw these guys. That's you looked at them in no, magazines. They said three words to Mike yeah. Douglas. Once MTV just... came along, and you you know you saw Sting and the Police talking, and you know you got it was you had a different. They weren't kind of. You didn't look up to them, and they weren't gods anymore. You know, they were just kind of regular guys, and girls. It's a little different, you know. Well, I think the the Beatles remain iconic. Just well, there's the Beatles and everyone else, and everyone you else know? who and and most people that you speak to. Who came after the Beatles were influenced and feel, inspired by the I Beatles. I feel bad for the Stones because they waited 18 years to put out a new record and then their new album comes out and the Beatles put their record out the next See, week. I they... don't think you ever need to feel bad for the Stones. Well, uh, you They're know, fine. They, they are, but they the, the Beatles put out a new record a week and a half later and it's like, you know, See I think ya. the Beatles actually waited because they were going to put it out oh. at the mm -hmm. same time and they waited a couple of weeks for the Stones because they've been doing that to each other, you know. That's pretty great when you have a new Beatles and Stones record out in the same two I was weeks. a big Stones fan. In the Beatles-Stones battle, I was a Stones fan because I was a juvenile delinquent. Yeah, because you, know, you was were, a yeah. And I was blues. I loved anything blues-based. I'm a Beatles person for life. As are Read your closing credits. Many, we're already bumping into the next show, aren't we? We're yeah, we're bumping okay. into our next podcast. Okay. Whatever you have lined up for your okay. commute, we don't want to interfere. So here <laughs> comes the closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod. And on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast. And our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com and if you enjoyed the show please subscribe and give us a nice rating in apple podcast or wherever you get your podcast and talk about us with your friends on social media you can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com we want to thank our wonderful guests john barber and chris carter our team includes producer dina friedman john maddox bill Filipiak, thomas hubble mason brown Lori dewall garrett arch chris baldwin 
Jordan Reyes, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker, here with Fritz Coleman and Chris Carter. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Yay! Oh, man, I cut my headphones. Good job. Off the whole-